Why don't you take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18, as we continue our sermon series through Genesis called Foundations. So if people love each other, if they want to commit to one another, if they want to declare that commitment through marriage, then who are you to say that they cannot do it? Who are you to say who people can and cannot love? That was one of the core arguments that was given by supporters of gay marriage leading up to last year's Supreme Court decision affirming same-sex marriage. That's actually an argument that is now beginning to be used in support of other unions like polygamy. And that's an argument that Christians are not always prepared to handle and deal with. And while it is true that in one way... Uh, The people of God are encountering certain things that they have never seen before, like a state-legalized same-sex marriage. On the other hand, there's really nothing new under the sun. Confusion about marriage and sexuality have been with us ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, the Bible paints the picture of marriage and sex in particular as something being mercilessly victimized and savaged by sin. Just in the book of Genesis, we will see polygamy, homosexuality, rape, paganized prostitution. And now today, there are lots of voices in our country pontificating about marriage. What is it? What does it look like? What is it for? But the most important voice on this topic of marriage is not the Supreme Court or right and left-wing political pundits or even your own opinion. The voice we need to hear above all else is God's voice on this. So let's listen to Him now. Please stand with me out of respect for the reading of the words of God. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Guess what? This is not fairy tale. This is actually recorded history. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And Moses writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us this morning as we look at your word 
Father, we, we cannot fully understand and grasp the things that are in this passage or any passage in Scripture without help from the Holy Spirit. So, so, Father, would you please send your Spirit now to illuminate the text. Father, help the preacher and help the listeners this morning to really tune in and receive and understand and believe and enjoy the Word of God this morning. And above all else, glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in our text today, there are three things that I want us to zero in on. And the first thing, and you'll find these in your, in your notes in the bulletin. You can follow along that way if you want. The first thing is that man is created for community. Man is created for community. Now, in last week's sermon, uh, we looked at the first half of Genesis chapter 2, and we left the first man, Adam, in a pretty good spot. God has created the world. He has made this paradise, this land of delight called Eden. It is full of richness, plentiful food, abundant resources, and God placed Adam in this garden, which was a kind of proto-temple or tabernacle. But in verse 18, we see something that to the first-time reader of Genesis would be shocking. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, that's a shocking statement because time and time again, we've seen throughout the creation account, God declaring the things in creation to be good. He makes something and he calls it good. He makes makes the light and he calls it good. He makes the, the, uh, the, the stars and the moon and the sun and he calls it good. We see this refrain over and over again in creation account. And this is the first time now that we see God say that something is not good. And what is not good is that the man is alone. And we learn from this text that that just like God has designed man to need food and water and purposeful work, God also has designed man to need community to fully flourish as God intends. He says it's not good that the man should be alone. Now, why might that be? I think because man is made in the image of God. He's made in the image of a God who is not alone. Man is made in the image of a God who is relational. That brings us to another biblical doctrine that has foundations in Genesis. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. The the biblical teaching that there is only one God. But this one God exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, look, look back with me at Genesis 1.26 and look how God speaks. He says in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice God uses this plural form. He says, let us. He says, our image. He says, our likeness. Who is God talking to? Is he talking to the angel? Some people have suggested that. I don't think so. Because we're not made in the image and the likeness of angels. Now, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, you see God talk in a very similar way. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. One of us? There seems to be multiple persons involved in the conversation. And again, I don't think it's the angels. The point of Genesis 3 is man becoming not like the angels, but like God. 
And so what I think the text is describing here is an inter-Trinitarian council. A conversation within the Godhead. God is a relational God. He was relational in eternity past. He did not create man because he was lonely and needed someone to love. If you have any children's Bibles that say that, throw them out. I've got better Bibles to suggest for you. God has never been lonely. Even in eternity past, before man, before angels, God has enjoyed a loving relationship and community within himself between Father and Son and Spirit. God, check this out, God is so amazingly self-sufficient that he doesn't even need anyone outside of himself for love and community. Oh, the superiority of Elohim, the God of the Bible, over Allah, the God of Islam. Muslims reject the Trinity and believe that there's only one person in the Godhead. And so, in their theology, Allah existed in eternity past all by himself, which means there was no love and there was no relationship. Fifth century theologian Augustine of Hippo noted that the Trinity is the basis behind the truth that God is love. Unlike the God of Islam, love and community and fellowship and family are at the essence of the very being of God. Three persons, equal in their divinity, equal in their worth, equal in their godness, and yet they are distinct. They're distinct in roles, distinct in functions. It's not the Father who comes to earth to die on the cross. No, it's the Son who is sent by the Father to be the propitiation for sins. And the Spirit proceeds from Father and Son, and He regenerates sinners. You have three equal yet distinct persons, all united for the glory of God. And so now, when God says, let us make man in our image... And all you have is one person by himself in the garden. It's not good. Yes, Adam has God. And that is, for sure, the most vital and essential relationship in Adam's life. But Adam is not equal with God. And so for Adam to more fully image something about God, Adam needs to be in relationship with another who is equal to him, yet distinct. He needs somebody to be united to in his life's mission to glorify God. He needs somebody to be one with. This does not mean that everyone is meant for marriage. But it does mean that everyone is meant for community. And so even for the unmarried, there is is a community There is a family that God has for you, a family where you are united to other people, and for you to really flourish as an image bearer on mission for God's glory, you need to be joined to a local church. Now, there are professing Christians who who push back against this and who want to be independent. I I don't need anyone, they say. I don't want anyone, I don't want to be involved in anyone's life, and I certainly don't want anyone involved in my life. All I need is me and my Bible and God, and I'm good to go. And yet, if Adam in the garden, who is sinless, mind you, who is in a perfect environment and has a more perfect relationship with God than you or me ever had, 
if Adam still needed community, if he needed another human being for spiritual flourishing and to help him achieve what God has called him to achieve, then how much more do we as flawed, broken, sinful people need one another? The New Testament epistles are filled with one another's. New Testament knows nothing of believers willfully isolating themselves from community. But while our text in Genesis 2 speaks a word in general about the necessity of community for human beings, it specifically is speaking to one God-ordained manifestation of community, which is marriage. So now let's go back to Adam in the garden alone. And he does not appear to notice that he has a need. But God already knows that Adam has a need, and he comes to help Adam. So let's see how he meets that need, which leads to my second observation here. Actually, earlier I said I had three observations. Actually, there's, there's four points to this. Number two, marriage was created to be between one man and one woman. Look at verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, that's interesting. Why doesn't God just immediately create the woman? Ah, Adam has a need. Boom, woman. Now, why, why does he go through this parade of animals? I think one thing that's going on here is, is there's an opportunity here for Adam to exercise one aspect of his image bearing, which is his rulership over creation. Naming things was an act of authority. And, and again, we see how the Bible and secular evolutionary theory are at polar opposites. Adam obviously had a vast intellect that was uncorrupted by the fall, and he would have had, had to have had significant linguistic abilities to do this. Adam was not some sort of brutish caveman grunting and acting like a naked ape. He sees these animals, he has insight into these animals and their natures and their functions. He's classifying them, he's naming them, and look at what the text says next. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Here we see Adam in the garden as Lord of the land, demonstrating authority over the animals. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But you get the sense from the text that what may have begun as an exciting scientific and zoological endeavor now becomes something that's tinged with a bit of sadness. Text goes on to say, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And this brings us to the primary point of all of this, that God is doing this to show Adam his need, to awaken him to his need. All of these animals are great, but none of them are quite doing it for me. There is no helper fit for me. Now, one of the common accusations that is leveled at the Bible is that the Bible is demeaning to women, that it puts down women, that it devalues women, teaches women are inferior, and some critics use this verse as an example of that. Well, what do you mean that woman is made to be a helper? Is she just some sort of maid to pick up Adam's dirty socks in the garden? Is that what this is? But the word that God uses for the woman, describing her as a helper actually is not demeaning at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's exalting. That word helper in the Hebrew is the word azer, E-Z-E-R. 
And, it, and that word conveys not inferiority, but strength, ability, competence. The, the azer is the one who comes and provides something that the other person lacks, that they need. That, that word used in a military context can be translated as ally. And most significantly, that word in the Bible is applied most often to God himself. Psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the heavens. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. Where does my help, where does my azer come from? God is my helper. Throughout the scriptures, God is seen as the mighty azer, the the mighty helper who comes in time of great need. It is a word of dignity and honor, and certainly it elevates the woman in this context. If the woman being called a helper demeans anybody, it doesn't demean the woman. It demeans the man. Because basically, we learn here that the man needs help. How many wives out there know that your husbands need some help? Amen? Don't be afraid. Adam needs help in fulfilling his calling. Remember, in Genesis chapter 1, it's not just to the man that God charges with the task of having dominion and rulership over the earth in God's stead. No. God charges both the man and the woman with this task. They are partners and they are allies in this great endeavor to fill the earth with the glory of God. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Fit for him. Azer Kenegdo. Fit for him. The Hebrew connotes the idea of opposite from him. Not identical, but complementary. Not as in giving a compliment. Hey, that's a nice tie you're wearing today. Complementary. Fitting together. Adam does not need someone identical. That would be redundant. This, this word, this phrase suggests something like a, like a puzzle piece. Uh, the two pieces are not identical, but when they are joined together, they are fitting in such a way that something is being accomplished that they could not accomplish on their own. Now, on the basic level, the, the fittedness of the man and woman can be seen on the anatomic biological level in regards to sexual physicality, but the fittedness goes way beyond that. As men and women are hardwired differently in how they think and in their emotions. And anyone who has been married for more than 10 minutes knows that's true. And yet it's always amusing to me when I'll occasionally see an article published by highly intelligent scientists who have spent tons of money on research and they declare, like it's some new revelation, that wow, men and women are different. Way to go, Einstein. I was just looking at some articles recently about some researchers who have been studying male brains and female brains. Here's a sampling of some of the stuff that I found. Apparently, in our brains, there is gray matter and there is white matter. The gray matter areas of the brain are localized. They are information and action processing centers in a specific area of the brain. This can translate to a kind of tunnel vision. Once the person utilizing gray matter is deeply engaged in a task or in a game, they may not demonstrate much sensitivity to other people or their surroundings. Now, just based on that, 
who do you think has more gray matter activity going on? Uh, Here's the symptoms. Tunnel vision, excelling in single-task focused projects, a decreased sensitivity to other people or their surroundings. That typically describes men. According to one study, men utilize nearly seven times gray matter than women do. We are seven times denser than you are. In contrast to gray matter, white matter is a networking grid that connects the different processing centers in the brain, which leads to the increased ability to multitask. And it turns out that women utilize nearly ten times more white matter than men do. You see, ladies, us men do need a helper fit for us. Females tend to have verbal centers on both sides of the brain, while males tend to have verbal centers on only the left hemisphere. So guess what happens if the girl is using her whole brain to talk and the guy's only using half his brain? Some of you wives know what this means. Guy comes home from work. Wife asks, how's your day? And the guy says, fine. That, that's it. We, we've used up our words for the day. We, we, we've, got a, we've been using them out throughout the, you know, they, they probably got used up by 11 o'clock that morning. We've got to work extra hard to get a few more words to come out. And guess what? We should do that. We should work hard to do that. Now flip that. Girl comes home. Husband asks her how her day was. And many times, men, what will you get? More than you bargain for. Women tend to be more verbal than men. Somebody spent thousands of dollars in research to tell you that. Other studies show that males tend to do better at various spatial skills, motor skills, rotating three-dimensional objects in their mind. Men are wired in, uh, in such a way where they tend to take more risks and have more aggression than women. That can be a beneficial thing. But you can imagine that a helper who brings more subtlety and a measured approach to the situation can be very good. Women typically have a larger limbic system than men, which makes them more in touch and expressive with their emotions. Men, not so much. Now again, these are general comparisons. There can obviously be lots of overlap here. You have men that excel in expressing emotions, and you have women who can be very logical. But my point is, is that even in the secular world, Despite its attempts over the past few decades at minimizing the differences, trying to minimize the differences between men and women, they end up stumbling upon the revolutionary, cutting-edge idea that men and women are wired differently in ways beyond the sexual body parts. There is such a thing as masculinity and femininity. And certainly to a degree, those things have been broken and distorted by Sin and the fall of man, which is why ultimately we need the Bible's help, not scientists or psychologists, to help us understand godly masculinity and godly femininity. Now, now this fittedness, going back to the garden, now this fittedness is demonstrated even in how the woman is made. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a, a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his, his ribs, in the Hebrew really, that, that's speaking of, of, of the side there, just as grabbing an area in the side of the man, and he closes up the place with flesh. We have the the first surgery here. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. In the creation of woman, we come across something that has no parallel in the pagan creation myths of the ancient world. Nowhere is the spotlight put on the woman. But here in the Bible, it's different. You know, it's interesting. While we have one verse describing the creation of Adam, we have six verses that are connected to the formation of Eve here in chapter 2. The coming of woman is a big deal in the Bible story. Creation is not perfected until the woman comes on the scene. And all God's women said, amen. The text says that God puts the man to sleep and reaches into the side of the man, takes out a piece of him, and he made the woman from that. That word for made in the Hebrew is a different word than the word used for the creation of Adam. This word made can be literally translated built. He built the woman. That the word is used in connection with the building of cities, of the building of the temple. It's a word that carries the idea of artistry, of craftsmanship. It's as if God is taking extra time and care like a master builder creating a masterpiece. There's a detailed subtlety to the fashioning of the woman. Now, Adam wakes up. How anticlimactic would it be if Adam woke up and just saw some other dude standing there? That would be anticlimactic. But that's not what he sees. He wakes up and he sees her, the missing piece of the puzzle which leads to his reaction in verse 23, which leads to my next point, marriage was created to be a covenant commitment. This is a beautiful moment. One of the most beautiful in the whole Bible. You have Adam in the garden temple, and you have God bringing the woman to the man. God serves here as a father of the bride, bringing her down that aisle. But not only does God bring her, God is also the officiator of the wedding. He's also the witness to the wedding. There are three witnesses, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when God brings the woman to Adam, Adam gives us the first recorded human words in history. And the first recorded human words in history are from a man, and it's poetry. It's poetry, guys. Some of you guys are not poetical. Some of you guys want me to get back to those studies on the brain that say you're wired to be less verbal and and less expressive with your emotions. But you can only milk that for so long, men. Here's Adam busting out in some beautiful poetry. Hebrew scholars tell me it's even more beautiful in the Hebrew, but it's great in the English too. Look at what it says. Verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last, Adam says, after seeing cats and dogs and rhinos and cows and horses and peacocks, finally, this at last is what I've been looking for. That's essentially what Adam is saying. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam recognizes that she came from him. She is a part of him. He sees something of himself in her, but there are beautiful distinctives, and the fact that she came from him is illustrative of how they are meant to fit together. But he's saying more than that. Bone of my bone 
and flesh of my flesh is a covenant formula. For example, in, in 2 Samuel 5, 1, you've, you've got those, the tribes of Israel coming to David and saying, we are your bone and flesh. It's a pledge of loyalty. It's a way of saying, we are with you and we will support you no matter what. We are one. When Adam declares Eve to be his bone and his flesh, he is expressing in that moment a covenantal commitment to her. He is pledging loyalty to her. He is expressing a a unity that is between them. He is saying they are one body. They are two persons. They are distinct persons, distinct in their roles, distinct in their functions. He is the leader. She is the helper. They have distinct roles and functions, and yet they are equal in their worth, in their value, in their dignity, in their humanity, and they are one. It's unity in diversity for the glory of God, just like in the Godhead. The covenant faithfulness between husband and wife is further expressed in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now this does not mean that a married couple completely disregards their father and their mother. The leaving of father and mother has more to do with a sense of loyalty and priority. The ties that bind the man to his parents are loosened, and now his new first loyalty is to his wife. He lets go of mommy and daddy, and he hangs on to his wife, and vice versa as well. The, uh, if, if you have a King James, it says they cleave to one another. Now, the, the word cleave today, I think, means <laughs> split in two, but back then it meant join together. Holding on to one another. And so if you're here this morning, marriage, your first loyalty is to your spouse. There are many marriages in tension because people disregard verse 24. And you've got a spouse who places parents above husband or wife. And you've got the husband on the phone complaining to his parents about her. And you've got the wife on the phone complaining to her parents about him. And then you've got the wife and his mom now against the husband. And the husband and his dad against the wife. And chaos and discord erupts. So married people, be on guard against that. Now verse 24 also is teaching us that this loyalty between husband and wife is a covenant faithfulness for life. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked if men can just casually divorce their wives, and Jesus answers, absolutely not. And the foundation of his teaching on marriage is the book of Genesis. Jesus says in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting from Genesis, what we just read. Jesus goes on to say, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And sadly, this beautiful covenant commitment, so poetically expressed by Adam in Genesis 2, and reaffirmed later on by Jesus, has been trampled underfoot so many times that many of us have become numb to it. But the Bible takes the marriage covenant seriously. Is it not interesting that the first, very first teaching the Bible gives in regards to human relationships is teaching on marriage? 
Is it not interesting that the Bible, that, that the Bible story, this big long story of 66 books, the Bible story begins with a wedding? Why is that? Why the significance of marriage? And that leads to my final thought for this morning. And that's that marriage was created to point to a greater reality. We've already seen many purposes for marriage in our text. Marriages for companionship, for complementary partnership, procreation. Many purposes for marriage. But the New Testament takes Moses' description of that covenant fidelity in in verse 24 and gives us a revelation from God that Moses did not have. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And 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 it's in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul reveals to us the most shocking truth of all about marriage. The truth that marriage ultimately is not about marriage you. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 31, Paul, quoting from Genesis 2.24, says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says, this is the mystery of marriage. Now, now Paul, when Paul uses that word mystery, and he, and he does so several times in the New Testament, he's not referring to something that's unknowable. For Paul, a mystery is a truth that's fullness was shrouded in the Old Testament, but, but revealed in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These mysteries are gospel realities that were hinted at in times past. But now they have been fully unveiled for God's people to see and enjoy. And the Apostle Paul says that one of these mysteries was marriage. And this mystery refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage, your marriage is ultimately about Jesus Christ and His church, whom the Bible calls elsewhere the bride of of Christ. Your marriage is designed to be a living parable, a living picture of the gospel. And you and your spouse have been put together by God to play very specific roles. Go, go up with me to verse 22, still in Ephesians 5. Text says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. The Apostle Paul is telling wives that they are to play a role in their marriage. They are to play the role of the church in relationship to Christ. How you live as a wife actually is preaching a message about Jesus Christ. As you joyfully and gladly follow his lead, you are actually preaching a message about how we are to treat Jesus Christ. You are preaching that that, that's the kind of response that Jesus Christ is worthy of. That's a very high and holy calling, wives. Now, you obviously do not follow your husband into sin. Your ultimate allegiance, beyond anything else, is to Christ and not to your husband. But, but this, is, this is the role that the wife is to play. 
And when you disrespect your husband, when you demean him, when you try to control him and try to manipulate him, you are preaching a message to others, to the world, to your kids, that it's okay to treat Jesus that way, that, that it's okay to not submit to Jesus or to submit to him only when you feel like it. Now, that does not give your husband the right to mistreat you. Because the husband also has a high and holy calling in marriage described in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Scripture talks about husbands cherishing their wives. The Apostle Paul is telling husbands that they have a role to play in their marriage, the role of Jesus Christ. You are to love your wife, it says. How are you to do that? It says you are to love her just as Christ loved the church. And how did Jesus love his bride? Text says he died for her. He gave himself up for her and for her, for her benefit and for her good. Now, some of you men say, well, that's easy. I'd take a bullet for my wife. I'd die for her. You know, I agree with you. That, that, that's easy for, for us men to take a bullet for our wives. No problem. You might die for her. That's not the challenging part. The challenging part is, will you die to yourself for her? Jesus Christ set aside his own comforts, his own needs, and self-sacrificially loved the church. He set aside himself for her best interests. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life up. He became a servant to her for her sake. For most guys, taking a bullet for the good of his wife is small potatoes. The harder thing men to do is to turn off the TV, turn off the video game, turn off the sports, set aside your hobbies, put in less time at the office. Get out of your comfort zone and read the Bible with and pray with her and her kids. Close the laptop and talk to her for a change. Work to cultivate a spiritual atmosphere in the home that will help her to grow and to flourish. Aiding her in her sanctification. Need I go on? Probably not. I think the Holy Spirit can do a better job than me of telling you the areas where you husbands need to die to yourself for the sake of your wife. And I trust the Holy Spirit is doing that with some of you right now. Yes, you are the head of the home. Yes, men, you are the leader. But at the heart of your leadership is stooping low as a servant to your wife for her best interest. So when you mistreat your wife, when you harbor unforgiveness, when you are not gentle, when you are not kind, you are preaching a false Jesus to your home, to your kids, to a watching world. Friends, the reason why same-sex marriage is wrong is because, at, at, at the heart of it, why it's wrong is because it distorts an image of the gospel, and that offends God. 
men and women through their design differences are the only ones suited to play the role of Christ and and the church. The reason why polygamy is wrong is because it tells lies about the gospel. Because Jesus Christ has only one bride, the church, not multiple brides. The reason adultery is wrong is because Jesus is always faithful to his bride. The reason wife abuse is wrong is because Jesus never abuses his wife, but does all things for her best interest. The reason God hates divorce is because it does violence to this picture of the relationship between Jesus and his bride. They will never be separated. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, when you engage in the cultural conversation about marriage and people ask you questions, well, why do you believe marriage should only be between one man and one woman? The most important answer that you can give them is that any distortion of marriage preaches a false gospel and tells lies about Jesus. And then after you tell them that, tell them the gospel. That needs to be the American church's contribution to the, to the cultural conversation because nobody else is going to say that. Now, in closing, let's go back to Genesis 2, verse 25. It says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That, that the chapter closes with a statement about the holy innocence of Adam and Eve. But it's also ominous foreshadowing because it it leads us into chapter 3 where Adam and Eve will sin against God and the sin leads to guilt and shame. And that that leads them to want to hide their nakedness. Now in the aftermath of Genesis 3, this room is filled with people who are in imperfect marriages and people who have suffered from broken marriages and people who long to be married but are not. And, and, and for that reason, sermons on marriage can actually be depressing and leave a hole in your heart. But the mystery of marriage teaches us to not put our hope in earthly marriage, but to put our hope in the thing that marriage points to. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the superior reality that marriage illustrates. You know, what grips, me the, what grips me the most about this first wedding in Genesis 2 is that God knew when he was bringing together Adam and Eve that they would sin. He knew that. And he knew that all the rest of us would fall with them. God knew this would happen. But now, thanks to Ephesians 5, we know something too. We know that when God is bringing Adam and Eve together in that first wedding... God is already thinking about another wedding, the last wedding. As God is officiating this beautiful moment in the garden, and as he witnesses Adam's declaration of covenant love and faithfulness to Eve, God is thinking about his own son, and he's thinking about a bride for his son. And he knows this bride will be fallen and dirty and stained and corrupted by sin. And this first marriage is a sign that there was already a plan in the works to redeem humanity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was planning to come to the world to get a wife. 
to get a bride for himself, to win her to him, he would have to die for her so that she could be spared. The covenant sign of his amazing love for her was his own blood, a blood that saves and cleanses and purifies his bride. And all sinners who call on the name of Jesus and receive him and his sacrifice by faith will be saved and will become part of the church, part of the bride of Christ, becoming as one body with Jesus. And because of his covenant faithfulness to his bride, we can never be separated from his love. I say it again, do not put your hope in marriage. Now marriage done right is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing that glorifies God and brings a measure of happiness. But do not put your hope in it. Because if you do, you will be disappointed. Earthly marriage is not the ultimate. Being united to Jesus Christ and enjoying Him is. A spouse cannot satisfy the deepest needs of your soul, but Jesus can. So hope in Him. And in the age to come, earthly marriage will fade away altogether. And in the end, there will only be Christ and His bride. In fact, we have a promise that we will one day be a part of Jesus' great wedding feast at the end of the age. The Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Put your hope in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your holy and inspired word. And thank you that you, from the very beginning, from eternity past, had planned to win a bride for your son. You, you planned to, to take us into your household and to clean us up and to build us up and to sanctify us and to save us and to rescue us. Jesus is ultimately the, the knight in shining armor and the hero who slays the dragon and rescues his bride. Father, I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room who is not yet, has not yet been incorporated into the bride of Christ, will you bring them in? Bring more in, Father, into the family. And Father, I pray for, for marriages today that are here, that, that you would renew that vision in regards to what their marriage ultimately is for. Their, their, their marriage is, is part of a mission to put a spotlight on Jesus Christ and the gospel for the world to see. Father, would you, would you make marriages here that assist in our witness about the gospel? Let our, our marriages preach a word affirming and illustrating the gospel to the world at large. Let, let, let our marriages be in harmony 
with the gospel that we preach. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.